Hello, this is the Blast Report podcast on all things blasting. My name is Evan Tebow with New Wave Consulting, and I want to thank all the Drill and Blast teams along with those supporting them who are out there on the pattern. The production team at BlastThink and I would like to welcome you to today's episode of the Blast Report podcast. This episode is brought to you by New Wave Consulting, where we bring innovation to industry. Our goal is bridging the gap between those who create technology and those who are in the field every day looking for improvements in safety, productivity, and reduced environmental impact. Our goal is to help customers with training, audits, and blast design to get the job done right. We do this by joining your team to achieve your goals. Contact us today at newwave.com. Uh, so welcome. Thank you for coming and being a guest on the Blast Report podcast. Thank you, Evan. I, uh, I've been meaning to get you on a guest for a while now, and I guess kind of had a few questions here, and I've heard your origin story for quite a few times while we do Tennessee state-level blasters training. and okay. um, Yeah, I, I'd like to get your start out with your origin story and then pick your brain about some other questions, but I know you've explained to me that you're the son of a, of a blaster and a miner. And so could you go into the into a little bit of your family history of why Mick Fritz is uh, working with explosives and how he's traveled around the world? Sure. I'm a grandson of, uh, of a blaster. In fact, uh, my uh, grandfather in 1915 uh, started the mines. He was 13 years old. And, of course, at that time, uh, in 1915, the four kids did not go to high school. When they got out of the eighth grade at 13, they went to work. And so when he went to the mines looking for a job, uh, they asked if anybody in the line of people would work with explosives. And he put his hand up, not having any idea at all about it, but he would do it. And I remember him telling me later, it's interesting, he said, we use coarse black powder in the soft coal, and we use uh, fine black powder in the hard coal. And of course, he didn't know why he did that, but we would, of course, the higher density and do that. Well, then in 1942, my my uh, <clears throat> great uncle, which was his brother, uh, worked at Enos Coal Company, and he worked on a powder crew where they used the horizontal holes, and there were four of them shoving yellow X back in the hole, and it blew out and killed all four of them, killed my great uncle wow. uh, in 1942. Well, then in 1948, my father, he came back from the... Uh, Wait, what, what's sorry? What's LOX? LOX is liquid oxygen, and it was made at the mine. It was invented in France, and it was an extremely uh, high volatile explosive. So it was a very good. Only thing was it was volatile, uh-huh. not like nitroglycerin, but it did tend to volunteer, and a number of people were killed using it. And so, probably by the 1950s, they discontinued using LOX uh, uh-huh. in, in the mines. Uh, and this was in Alabama? This was in Indiana. Okay. It was in the Enos Coal Company. And they had their own LOX factory. LOX, when you made it liquid oxygen, uh, one of the big stories in the community was you could go in there and put something in the LOX and then, then drop it and it would shatter because it instantly freezes it. And, and one oh, of the wow. giggle stories was taking a snake and putting it in the LOX and then dropping it on the pavement. 
and it just shattered it. And uh, so uh, that's the way. And it was so it was it was uh, so sensitive, yeah, and dangerous to handle. So then, uh, when my uh, dad came back from World War II, nineteen and forty-eight, he went to work in the mines, and uh, uh, he worked with in. Uh, it was kind of the, the powder crews were usually the beginning level. Interesting enough, here you got a very hazardous, dangerous material, <clears throat> but people didn't want to work with dangerous, hazardous material. So as soon as they could get a different job, they got out of it. Which it's actually still explosives is still kind of considered yeah, an entry level new, job at certain yeah. very large mining companies. Right. The new guy. So in 1970, when I came home from Vietnam, uh, you know, Dad said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I didn't know what I wanted to do." And he said, well, "Get in the pickup truck." He takes me to. Uh, Merle Guthrie's house, which was the superintendent, and says, Merle, I want someone like to have a job. He said, stand show up Monday and go to work. Well, that's illegal today, uh, <laughs> but back then that was called nepotism, and most of the guys at the mine were the second, third generation uh, miners, as I was a third uh, generation uh, miner. And uh, so uh, the, the my grandfather, uh, so then I started out as like a supply clerk and then they, they wanted me to take a third shift drilling and blasting job. The union guys made $1,400 a month and the company guys made $700 a month. So union guys wouldn't take company jobs, with no money in it. I was making about $400 a month as a supply clerk. So $700 was an increase for me. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go do it. Not having a clue what I was getting into. Now my grandfather said, don't do it, don't do it. Said the explosives are dangerous or hazardous. You know, you shouldn't do that. And I tried to explain to him, no, they're not that bad, Grandpa. It'll work just fine. Not like they used uh, to be. I had no idea how I was defending it because I didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, But anyway, that's how I got started, uh, you know, in it. Uh, And you basically went out and just did what you was told to do. Uh, Unfortunately, there's probably a lot of people out there in the industry today do what they're told to do. Right, doing what they should or know to do, they just do what they're told to do. And I remember being that, and I uh, actually went through third ship, got promoted to second ship, and, and the new third ship foreman came out and said, "Why are you doing this?" And I was embarrassed because I didn't know why I was doing this. He was asking me why was I putting this explosives in this hole, and I didn't know why. And and that embarrassment made me go to the point of saying. I need to know why we're putting the booster where we're putting it and why we're putting product where it's at. Uh, I had no clue what a powder factor was. I had no idea, you know, what was where. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the, the beginning. And uh, so uh, in the mines, uh, production was by far more important than anything else. I mean, uh, vibration control, this is back in the 70s, uh, you know, Safety was not even close, right? We weren't close. You're, you're right. Uh, it was an interesting little side story here. It was interesting. We used all detonating cord. And uh, then they came up and said, well, you're within so many thousand feet of a house. You can only, according to law, can only shoot so many pounds per delay. You know, well, when we're shooting all detonating cord and 3,000 pounds in a 16-inch foot porthole, we'd shoot like 10 holes at one time. Well, I mean, it, you know, all right. So we said, okay, so we got to make sure that every hole goes off individually, not all together with detonating cord. Now, what we didn't know, and I think this is so interesting, I didn't even think about this till literally 30 years later. 
that detonating board shoots at 24,000 feet per second. And our pattern was 45 foot. So the piece of detonating board that traveled from the collar of this hole to the next collar of the hole, it took her two milliseconds to get there, but we assumed it instant. And then it goes down that bore hole, which is 100 foot deep. So that's another four milliseconds. So it was six milliseconds between it, but we didn't know that. We oh. were saying, and everybody else was saying, we were shooting it instantly. Okay, so then they said, no, you got to use electric caps. Well, guess what? We introduced inaccuracy because the detonating cord was very accurate. Okay, so we put the electric caps in there and people complained. We're like, how could you complain? We just went in, we shot, we weren't shooting 10 holes at a time. Now we're shooting one hole at a time and you're complaining. Well, what we didn't know was those detonators were firing maybe out of sequence back in the 1970s. Uh, and, uh, you know, we didn't know that we were actually creating problems instead of solving uh, problems. And uh, again, you know, we were, and then in 1976, uh, this company come out uh, called Ensign Bickford and said they had a non-electric detonator. And we were saying, well, why would we want to do that? And they said, well, you got this electric, everything was electric at the mine. The power cables, everything was electric. And MSHA said, we had to stay 50 feet away from any power cable when using electric caps. If we use non-electric caps, we didn't have to. Well, bingo, that was a pretty easy decision for us to have to quit dragging those power cables away from the shot. Mm. Uh, and <clears throat> so 1976, which was early, uh, we went to shooting uh, non-electric detonators. Uh, and, uh, and it made it a much better. Now, also, what we didn't know was by shooting the seat, the shooting like the 42s down the face, uh, you know, the, this whole you basically ensured yourself not shooting out of sequence. We when electric caps were introduced and you had 10 holes out there, every hole had a different delay in it. And we learned how to use sequential timers and slave boards and, and all that stuff back in the Midwest, uh, you know, to that. So, uh, you know, that was the, so. Now, did you, you had, this is all after you got back from Vietnam. Yes, it is. Yeah, I mean, the, the little side story in Vietnam was when I was in Vietnam, uh, I was with the United States Marine Corps, and we was on Oklahoma Hills. Our job was to find the 131st Infant uh, Viet, uh, Viet, Cong. Of Viet Cong, and we did, and destroyed their base, and then we had to blow up their bunkers, and the engineers came up, and of course, I was a private first class, so they handed me like three sticks of C4 with fuse, said, go in that bunker, put it in there, light it, run out, holler, fire in a hole, we're going to blow the bunker up. And I didn't know why, but I said, where do you want me to put it at? And they said, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's one of those deals where if you got enough explosives, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You blow the, blow the bunker up. So actually, my first time to, to actually touch and use explosives was 1969 up in the jungles of Vietnam. had no application at all to the mining side of it. And, and so, again, come back got in the mines and uh, uh, went through some interesting times because there were things that we did that I can look back on now and realize what we were doing wasn't right or things that we did that was right. And uh, one example was uh, when we were blasting and the homeowners were complaining. And so corporate called down and said, 
okay, we were shooting 30 holes in a, in a shot, and they said cut it down to 10 holes at a time. And uh, for no reason other than we want to make the homeowners happy. So we shot three shots of 10 holes each. Okay, so then the homeowner said that isn't any better, which it wasn't, and we want you to go further. So corporate called out and said, shoot three holes at a time. Man. Okay, so we shot three holes at a time. And what size borehole are we kind of talking here? Uh, we're talking nine and seven eighths. And what depth? Uh, shoot 80 feet holes. 80 Just feet three holes. at a time. Shooting Oof. three holes at a time. Okay, so then we, of course, as, you, <clears throat> as we do now, we were probably damaging adjacent holes, you know, uh, by doing that. And uh, so we went to the three at a time, uh, it really ticked off the neighbors because now we're shooting 10 times a day, you know, and guess what? What we what we found out was we were getting as much vibration on the three holes as we were back on the 30 holes, okay? So this old story, we had the south end and we were gonna shoot a reclamation shot and because the pit was done. And so you start at the, the beginning and you, you progressively sh make the shot more shallow as you go backwards to give you a slope, a three to one slope for your final reclamation. So we'd done that, we had 127 holes down there and everybody was saying, oh my God. It's gonna take three holes at a time, all year. 127 holes. Oh my God, that's gonna be forever. And Hot Boils was my foreman. I was at that time now the senior drilling and blasting foreman. And I said, Hob, let's hook it up and shoot the whole thing at once. And he stopped and he said, you can't do that. And I said, no, no, we can do that. We're just not supposed to do that. And he said, oh my God. Well, the other problem we had was the homeowners had got smart enough that they'd got um, uh, 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 machines where they could listen to our, Radio. our conversations, scanners, <clears throat> radio scanners. So I told Hob, I said, okay, we're gonna shoot this out there with radio silence. Nobody talked. Because it was so far away from the homes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were, yeah. Miles on the other side of the mine. The other thing, it was probably, seems to me like it was like 4,000 feet, something like that. Maybe not a full mile, but it's a long way away. We also agreed that we wouldn't shoot until school was out. So we were never allowed to shoot until after 3 o'clock. I told Hob, I said, we're going to shoot this at 12 o'clock in, in, in the afternoon. And uh, again, Hop said to me, we can't do that. And I said, no, no, we can do this. We're just not supposed to do this. And everybody was big eyed and like, oh my God, I can't believe we're going to do this. So we hooked up all 127 holes, radio silence, everybody ready, put off the shot. Now, when we shot the homeowners, what they did is they had a phone tree, they called it. And if anybody knew we put off a shot, they called all their neighbors so all their neighbors could call and uh, what uh, what that did was the more phone calls made, made the corporate understand how bad the shot was. When the shot had nothing to do with good, bad, or indifferent, you just number of phone calls made. And one of the neighbors actually had an aquarium and she told her, she said, I sit here after three o'clock and I watch my aquarium and when I see the water move, I know you put off a shot. Then I call everybody and they call in. So we did that, life was done, nobody said anything and everybody was like, I can't believe it. So Monday morning, uh, Lyle Young, who was the district manager, comes in and says, okay, Mick, when was going to shoot that south end? I said, oh, we went ahead and already did it, Lyle. He said, you shot the whole south end when? I said, Friday. He said, well, how many phone calls did you get? I said, nothing. He said, you shot, wait a minute, how many holes did you shoot per shot? And I said, all of them. He said, 
Mick, you can't do that. Well, I said, we did do that. And he said, wait a minute, how many phone calls did you get? And I said, none. Okay, now what was that? That was 1979 when we did that. And what we proved, although it was never documented or made a big deal is, if you've got the right relief with the right timing, the number of holes is not the point. You know, in other words, you can shoot a hard shot as long as the movement is there and, it, and everything works well. So, you know, we did that. Now, I went on uh, after that. and Without getting fired. Excuse me? And went, without getting fired. You went on. Without, yeah, well, the, the thing <laughs> you did was, well. Everybody was, and, and what, what happened then, while young, everybody said, okay, this, this, this crazy, we're going to go back to 30 holes at a time. And we made our case to corporate and said, we just shot 127 holes, not got a single complaint out of it. Now, when the homeowner, there's one lady who was in charge, and she come to mind, she said, I want to know when you're going to shoot that south end, because they all knew this was going to happen, and it was closer than normal to us and stuff, you know. And they said, well, Mrs. Jones, we already did. We, she said, when did you shoot this? She was aggravated. We said, Friday. She said, how come you didn't tell us? And we like, didn't know we were supposed to, you know. Mm. She was absolutely livid. <laughs> because we had done this. We went back shooting 30 hills at a time, no problem, vibration, different, whatever. But we learned, you know, real life, you know, uh, what happened. What the complaints that, were coming in from and the truth behind it is, yeah. it was a vendetta. So, it, it, <clears throat> it, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, that happens. I mean, it gets to the point where people just, you know, but, uh, and of course, I left uh, the mines and uh, went to work for Ensign Victor and went to Pennsylvania. And, uh, Amax asked me to stay, not to leave. They offered me a, uh, a district drill blast job if I would stay. And I just did not want to be any longer in the coal industry. I was, or as I would serve time to move on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then went to Pennsylvania and uh, found it to be an extremely invigorating and enjoyable uh, job going out and work with the, the blasters. And then it in different types of applications, because yeah. you went from only being in coal to many other applications. Different applications. Uh, there was a guy named Bud Glenn, and he worked for Kesco, and uh, he taught me all about underground mining. I knew nothing about underground mining, and so he took me underground and explained to me the horizontal holes and the rib shots and, and all this. So I went up to uh, New York to American Salt. And uh, we converted them to uh, what they called salt mine series units. So electric caps to primaline primadets. And again, you know, those kind of things were just very invigorating, you know, to, to work with the guys up there and, uh, uh, you know, shooting in the salt mines. Uh, and then, uh, like I say, there in Western Pennsylvania at the time, there was probably 20 independent distributors. And so coming up with a new product, was uh, record easy to do because if you showed them it was in their best benefit, they went for it. You know, they didn't have a political agenda, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to it. And uh, so uh, uh, that was exciting. Uh, and because it was new, it was a new, new thing uh, to do that. Now, at the same time, uh, and I've used the phrase that Pennsylvania was a, like a wild west at the time uh, because there wasn't the regulatory oversight there that there is today. Uh, I mean, there was a new group out called MSHA because <laughs> they started in 1977. Uh, and then, of course, the states were all trying to create their own departments uh, to maintain uh, the rights to manage 
the mining in their, their states. So uh, there was a guy named Charles Nork, and he was the head of uh, DNR for the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, no one knew anything about non-electrics. So he asked me to come in and do the state of Pennsylvania blasting test with him uh, and do an hour lecture on non-electrics because he didn't know anything about non-electrics. So that really get, that really upstaged me because I heard in front of an audience doing uh, you know doing this this work uh, and and so it really like I said enjoyed that. Now there was one particular guy, you know as you, you hear these war stories uh, and for all of us who has had uh, near misses and we're still here uh, fortunately and uh, they're at the the one mine. They were changing over from primaline primates to shock tube primates underground, underground mine. And they asked if I would come up and destroy all the old primaline primates. And I said, yeah, I could do that. So I go up there and we take all the detonators out and I take them outside and put them in a big stack and let them deal. And uh, so I lit them up to burn them, you know. And so they were burning. Are these, these are debts that have, uh, are crimped onto uh, debt cord. Correct. Yes, that's exactly right. Downhold delay detonator. on the debt cord. So you're right. You had rounds of debt cord, BTN, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in these detonators, and I, and I lit it up. And so I started to walk away, and one of the boxes fell off of the pile, and I hesitated. I thought, I'll go put it back on the fire. And I thought, no, they say, uh, don't, uh, don't go, uh, don't uh, uh, go back to, uh, explosives that are burning. Mm-hmm. So I walked, so I said, that's right. That's right. So I started walking away and I probably got a hundred feet away and all of a sudden, car, boom, this huge blast. And I just cringed down and I saw all the stuff flying by me. And I turned it around and there was just this hole in the ground. Whoa. And it was like, oh God, I just literally, you know, three or four minutes earlier, I was getting ready to walk over there to put those explosives back on that shot. And what one of the things that blew by me was a glob of a molten shock tube uh, that it, it had melted into a glob. And I took that glob of molten and I put it on my desk. And every desk I've ever had since then has that glob on that desk to say, okay, obey the rules. Don't no shortcuts. That's what you've got to do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blast Report podcast. I want to thank the team at Blast Think for producing this show, and please follow along for more episodes in the future and share this podcast with your colleagues so we can continue to honor our industry and the people in it. Be safe and have a blast.